Sometimes your career takes a turn. Our guest today on Creative Innovators is the wonderful Chris Zaida. Chris is someone who I got to know back in grad school when we were young people, very young people, and he has a new book out called The Storm. And The Storm is really a biographical history of the life that was when he made an abrupt right turn and needed to find something other than going into a creative direction when he was dealing with his partner's health crisis and passing during the earlier stages of the AIDS epidemic. Please enjoy this journey story where Chris turned right and kept turning right and found a way to combine finance with creativity and storytelling and made his way back after a stint with Disney and Amazon and eBay. He's like Zelig and how someone who was deemed to be untrainable at an earlier stage in his career ended up creating not just a career at those major companies, bringing together finance and storytelling, but also, and learning, learning on the job, but also how he then took a company public and then in the financial crisis of 2007-2008 launched his own company where he's at the helm of now helping do finance and storytelling for major family uh, family offices in Southern California. So please enjoy this story. I've enjoyed knowing Chris this whole journey and think about from this what happens if you turn right? What could you do differently that could be a different career, but maybe swing back and become a writer in your later stages of your journey? So I've been privileged to watch pieces of your life as they have come through mine. And so I'm really excited to have you on the show. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. I'm very glad to have you on here because you have come full circle round to, and I actually have a copy of the book at hand here with the storm, to, to your your fairly new book. When did this come out? It came out on December 8th. December. So we're still- Two, we're, just, just three weeks ago, yes. Yeah, we're recording this in December of 2020. So I'm really proud that you have done this book to tell- Pieces of your life story that are maybe similar and different than we're going to talk about today. What inspired you, English major back from UCLA in the 1980s, to swing back around to publish a, a very specific autobiography? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I have always kept in the very back of my mind that I might write something someday. And I would, I originally, I thought, I would get back to it when my career slowed down, but my career never really has slowed down. And um, so um, my book is about my first partner who died of AIDS in in, uh, 1991 and all the crazy things that went around that. But uh, 20 years after he died, I wrote a very short story, 13 page journal entry almost about what had happened in a very high level manner around that time. And over the years, I mostly showed it with my family, shared it with my family at first. And I shared it with a couple of friends over the years. And there were two people who kept telling me this, you should write this into a book. It would be a great story. You should totally do this. And I, I really didn't want to at first. It took me a long time to come around to decide that that would be the thing that I would write. Um, 
but they kept at me. And finally, um, a couple of things aligned in my life and it, and I finally felt maybe I could try it. And, you know, certainly there's a lot of very painful and personal disclosures in this book that I was also afraid of writing and putting out in the public. Um, so even when I started writing it, I didn't even think that I'd publish it at first. I just thought it would be interesting to see, could I remember what happened? Cause it was 26 years earlier than it had all happened mostly. And I, um, and I wasn't sure I could remember it. So I, but I did my best and I, that's ultimately what got me to start the process. And how long ago did you start writing the book? I started in September of 2017. So this has been even a journey in the writing phase and the publishing phase. Yes. Well, the interesting thing is it, I think the getting a publisher, you know, getting an agent and getting a publisher took a lot longer than writing the book. Um, I wrote the book in six months and then it, it just took really a year and a half almost to get a publisher to give the go ahead. Cause you know, it's a tough subject and um, memoirs are, you know, d are harder to find publishers for sometimes. And, um, but it turned out that the publisher rare bird books that published my books um, came along at the perfect time. And my book came out in the middle of the COVID-19 virus pandemic um, when it's about the AIDS virus pandemic from the 1980s. So it's a, it's a, it ended up being a perfect timing for the book to come out. But not necessarily quite a time for you professionally for your, your day job. <laughs> My real job is <laughs> investing money for a number of very high net worth families and um, their foundations and their companies and all their various holdings. And that is a, quite a busy job. I mean, I generally work about 75 hours a week on that and uh, have, I've re I founded my company about 13 years ago. And so wow, it's yeah, been that long. It's I been guess that long. Was. Yeah. This is the longest thing I've ever done in my life work-wise is this company mosaic and um and so it was i have from another <clears throat> crisis right it started in the financial crisis of 2007 8 um and i've grown it to be a wonderful company we're managing billions of dollars for a number of high net worth families and we do everything we're basically the family's chief financial officers and we handle anything financial that comes along in their life so i was doing this you know 75 hours a week the day and on weekends. And then um, I had to carve out time to write my book at night and on weekends. So I had a, I had a pretty disciplined schedule that I set up and I stuck to, and I had a bunch of rules that I followed and um, I wrote two nights a week. So Tuesdays and Thursdays from seven to 10 PM, I had to write. And then um, I had to take one day of each weekend uh, to write 10 hours. Um, and if it was a three day weekend, I had to do two 10 hour days. And then every time I had a, an airline flight that was longer than two hours, my rule was that I had to write from the moment they let us use our laptops until we had to put them away for landing. And then when I was away on business trips, um, after my work day, I would write in my hotel room unless I had work to do. And when I put all of that together, uh, and then I also had to write 10 pages, at least 10 pages per week. Um, cause I knew I had to have about 250 some odd pages for a book. And, um, and I really stuck to this plan. And um, after the first couple of first few weeks, first few chapters, I really got in the zone about it. And it was a really wonderful experience, although it was 
incredibly painful and cathartic at the same time. So I'm going <clears> to <throat> back you up in life a bit here. Cause okay. when I think of you, I think of someone who is at his heart, a creative and at his heart, persistent, detail oriented, passionate about his work and someone who wasn't planning to be a finance guru. When That's you right. were a small pup, what were you planning to actually be and do way before English major at UCLA? What was what was the Chris Zida at 10 or 12 thinking he wanted to do when he grew up? Well, when I was really young, I wasn't really thinking about anything other than being a doctor, which is what my parents constantly fed to me as I was growing up. They wanted a doctor. I was, I'm the youngest of three children, and they wanted one of us to be a doctor, and my my sister wasn't a doctor, my brother wasn't a doctor, and so I was their last chance. Um, and so they really indoctrinated me to think about that. So I did have that at a very young age, but when I was about 15 years old, I went to my first Hollywood screening at the 20th Century Fox Studios where I got to see the original Star Wars film in 1977. And the moment I saw that film, I knew I was going to work in Hollywood in some okay, capacity. Okay, how did you end up there? I mean, I, I was at one of the first day <clears throat> showings, but how did, who got you in to see the screening? <laughs> so this girl from my um, from uh, junior high school, Karen, her father was an, a marketing executive at 20th Century Fox. And, um, and it was right around the time that the film came out, uh, 20th Century Fox had a special screening on the lot. And um, she invited me and a few of our other friends from from junior high and we were, we were in high school or just going into high school at that point. And, um, and so we all went down and there and her dad drove us to the lot and we went in the screening. I had no idea what a, you know, what really what a studio was or what it looked like. And we went in this very cushy studio, uh, you know, screening, screening room, um, huge theater actually. And, uh, it was just incredible. It had an incredible sound system. The screen was huge. You know, there were no commercials. It was just the best way to see a movie and especially that film. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> um, I think I was in the center Dome in Orange County, um, <laughs> which is a gigantic screen mm -hmm. of that. That my dad basically said we had to be there that day. That's my, my, or one of my, I had a, a lot of our lives are circular. So I went back. I was uh, actually George Lucas's banker when we came back mm -hmm. full circle to mm -hmm. doing the reissues. So um, I, this is not my story. This is a Chris Ida story. So, uh, <laughs> so you were living where at the time? Uh, well, I grew up in Porter Ranch out in the San Fernando Valley. Um, so we had lots of people in um, <clears throat> all my you know elementary, junior high, and high school that were working in Hollywood in some fashion. Parents were working in Hollywood. Some of my classmates were actors and actresses. And um, so it was sort of all around me. And, um, but really seeing Star Wars in the, on the 20th Century Fox lot was the impetus for me to really think, okay, I wanna work in Hollywood. And, and also age 15 and onward, I was increasingly realizing that I liked to write that I was good at writing, then I was better than many other people. <clears throat> and I was, you know, I was editor of my junior high school newspaper and I was editor of my high school newspaper. And so I had a lot of opportunities and, and creative outlets for writing. Um, and then I, I, I did enter UCLA as a chemistry major because my parents really did want a doctor. But after the end of my freshman year, I switched to English literature, much to their dismay. <laughs> 
so, the first so the first of my big dismays for them. <laughs> hey, mom, dad, I've already changed majors, and um, <laughs> so. So, so English lit. You were thinking that you were going to become this phenomenal screenwriter, or that you were going to. I wanted to write uh, everything. I mean, I hadn't really honed it. I was. I wrote movies as, as an undergraduate at UCLA. I wrote a play, a musical that got produced there. Um, I wrote a lot of short stories. Um, I, I thought about maybe I'd write a novel someday. I hadn't really fine tuned it terribly much while I was in college. I just knew that I, that writing was going to be a big part of my life. And every, and little by little, as I went through college, I was just doing more and more writing. I was, became an English tutor. I was tutoring the people on their graduate school applications and tutoring the, the football team and the basketball team on composition. And, um, and I just did a lot of, a lot of writing and every, you know, and I took more and more classes outside of the English department in the theater arts department, which was difficult to do at UCLA in those days. If you weren't a theater major, they generally frowned on you taking their classes, taking up a spot, <laughs> but I did anyway. And, um, and I just loved it. It was really a passion. It was a lot of fun. And then I yeah, set off talk- to, Go ahead. and I set off to make it a, you know, my career. Um, and that's when life happened. And, and this is where your book takes a deep dive into this whole time of your life and a lot of decisions in your life, including, uh, including coming out, including healthcare, <laughs> including decisions on how your work interplayed with your personal life because of, of financial need and security and, and, and fear. And so it depends on how somebody is in listening to this, whether they have any kind of scope and scale to understand the dynamics what not wanting to to tell someone the entire story that they should read your book about, but what were the decisions you were making personally at this point about what Chris Sida was going to be when he grew up? Well, I had pursued writing for a couple of years after I graduated in 1984. Um, I had also fallen in love with my first partner, Stephen, and we were building our life together. And, you know, writing is a risky profession. It's really difficult to break through. It, it requires a lot, of, a lot of time and attention. And I had a day job to help pay the bills, but I was writing at night. Um, what was the day job? I worked for the UCLA administration. And, um, and so Stephen started to get sick in 1986. Um, and this was in the days when uh, AIDS tests barely existed. And if you took one... It'd go on your health record, and then your insurance company would use it to drop you. So there was a big fear about getting AIDS tests, and also they weren't they weren't quite accurate yet, um, and they didn't have anonymous AIDS tests then. So in this whole backdrop of Stephen getting sick, trying to figure out, you know, how was I going to be a writer if you know Steve was going to get sick? We were going to have a lot of healthcare expenses. Um, I also thought that I had AIDS too. <clears throat> I was pretty sure that I had it since we had had, you know, unsafe sex together. And, um, and so I made a really difficult decision in the, in the summer and fall of 1986 to go get an MBA so that I could make more money and have a stable job with healthcare. And I'd have enough money to pay for Steven's healthcare expenses for the rest of his life. And then someday my own. And that's ultimately what led me to business school. And then where we met, that's where I met you and um, where we worked on the exchange, the newspaper together. 
And um, I coerced so, you into taking over the editorship, like you really needed something else in your life at that point in time. And I then know. actually, we performed together. You played the piano backup for me. I know. Um, in sing- but that's for, a for cabaret, thing. right? So, how long had you been playing piano underneath all of this oh, stuff? Oh, I started playing piano when I was seven, and um, and I I actually insisted to my parents. I I came home from school and I said I want to learn piano. There had been a piano in my kindergarten class, and the teacher had p- pasted the notes on top of each of the keys, and so you could sort of follow a really simple song and plunk out and plunk out the melody. And I just loved it. And I and I even when I went into first grade, I would come back to my kindergarten class after school, and I'd go try to play on the piano. And and when I got into second grade, it just became a little bit uncool to be creeping back into the kindergarten. <laughs> so I just came home and said, I want to take piano lessons and. Um, and then my parents got me a teacher who I drove nuts because um, <clears throat> I didn't play all the notes on the on the music. I added extra ones if they sounded better, and she hated that. And and after about a year of teaching me, she she pronounced that I was unteachable and quit. So the unteachable Chris Zida was then <laughs> all the way through his masters. But really needing to find security, health insurance in some place that would be inspiring. And you tell this beautifully in your book, but how did you, how the heck did you end up at Disney in the Treasury Department? It's the craziest thing. I mean, my life is really fascinating on some on a career level because here I was in business school. I knew my partner had AIDS. I thought for sure I had it too. And I was just trying to get a job that I would make a good salary and pay for his, pay for Steven's healthcare. And, uh, but I found out when I got into business school that I was really good in the finance and statistics and economics and accounting that were a lot of trouble for other people. And so it was really easy for me. Um, and I decided I wanted to work in the entertainment industry, even if I wasn't going to be a writer, I wanted to be in it in some fashion. And I set my sights on Disney because it was the best entertainment company at the time and still is. And I just put myself to, I bugged the heck out of this woman in the, in the, uh, the personnel division there every, every week. Her? I just called the studio and I just asked them to put me through to human resources. And she picked up the phone. Her name was Debbie and she was really sweet, like as a typical Disney employee would be. And I just said, I'm looking for a summer internship there. And she says, well, we don't have anything right now, but you can, you can kind of check back once a week because things change quickly around here. And I called her for months every week. And then finally, it was like the first week of May. Okay. And school is over in like the first week of June. <clears throat> and I didn't have a summer job. And she said, well, I have an internship in the consumer products division. It's in finance. If you can come in, I'll get you, put your name on the top of the list and we'll get you an interview. And, and that ended up being how I got hired by Disney for the summer. No, I suicided on Disney. It was this, it was one, it's one of the most crazy rolls of the dice of my life where I literally just decided I was going to work for Disney. And if it hadn't come through, I wouldn't have had a summer job. And then I probably would have had a very different life. But, um, but that job, that summer job turned into my field study job, my field study project for the following years. That's the master's project that we had to do to get our MBA. And so we did a field study project and then Disney liked me so much that they said they were going to hire me when I graduated. So I didn't have to do recruiting in my second year, which was wonderful. 
and then, but they didn't know where they were putting me. And then at the end of sort of in May of May of 89, so right, you know, a month before graduation, I went on an interview in the treasury department. I didn't even know what a treasury department was. And I got hired to be there. And my half of my job was investing the company's money. And half of my job was doing investor relations, which is all the financial communications that a company does for Wall Street and shareholders and and analysts and and things like that, and, and they, speeches for the speeches. CEO. I remember you're you're, you're writing uh, Michael Eisner's speeches for a while, right? I mean, I, and so it ended up being a great use of my English degree because I could write well. But on my first day at Disney, I, almost on my first day, I was really interfacing with the senior executives of the company and helping them write their speeches for Wall Street and telling them what they what they could and couldn't say because of disclosure issues and you know working with the the general counsel on what we could say publicly and what we weren't saying publicly and um at the same time I was learning how to invest I mean on my first day at Disney I was responsible on some level for almost 1 billion dollars of investments and this was just the craziest career transformation <laughs> i could have ever imagined cuz this is like 1989 i'm doing this and then in, back in 1986 i was trying to be a writer and all this you know and all while steven was, was getting sicker and sicker <clears throat> i don't want to interrupt some of the core parts of your of your story but but also was in a, another crazy financial time so you know, 89 was the HLT crisis, if I remember correctly, that we were heading into uh, financial challenges. We'd been through financial challenges uh, mm -hmm. and and uh, it wasn't necessarily a smooth, easy time to hear Chris manage the cash balances for a, a major top corporation. Right. right. I mean, Disney was growing gangbusters at the time. It was only really four or five years after Michael Eisner even joined the company. And so everything was growing by leaps and bounds. Um, in 1987 was the big stock market crash in October. That was 20% decline in one day. That's still the biggest decline ever in history. And that was that shook up the markets. And then as we got into 1989 and 1990, that was the first financial crisis, which was mostly commercial real estate related, but it did drag the whole country into a recession. And um, that was the backdrop of getting hired into Disney and then getting pushed, you know, put into this really treasury is about the best finance job that you could have in any company. And then to have it in a growth company like Disney was literally like winning the career lottery. And I'm enormously grateful and thankful for it. At the time it happened to me, I didn't even know what had really happened. All I knew is I had a lot of work to learn how to invest stocks and bonds and real estate and alternative investments and to write all these speeches for all these very, very um, famous see, you know, famous people that were running the company in different divisions and, and to try to keep it all going together while my partner was home dying from AIDS. It was a, it was a really wild period of time for me. So <clears throat> one of my favorite Chris Zida elements is that you, you, you collect people that you still know people that you've worked for through the years. And so um, I know that you still know people who you worked at UCLA with. Um, you built a relationship with people across your time at Disney. What was it like to be at Disney during those days and to be a young professional trying to balance many lives at the same time? Oh, the beginning of Disney. It was fun. I mean, I really loved what I was doing. I mean, it went and it was a wonderful um, 
escape for me for a portion of each day to be at this incredible company where everybody was an A-plus player. You know, even the executive assistants were really A-plus people. And um, to be learning so much. And I also, a big part of my job interfaced with Wall Street. So I would be in New York and JP Morgan would be teaching me about how equities worked. And I'd be sitting on trading desks at PIMCO down in Newport Beach and learning about how bonds and everything got priced. And um, But Disney was wonderful because we were sort of conquering the world then. It was probably one of the best eras to be working at Disney because we were building new theme parks. We were trying new, you know, new types of entertainment. I mean, there were so many really great things that happened while I was there. And, um, and I did for a while was able to balance it um, against, you know, what was going on at home with Steven's illness. And eventually there was a, there was a collision course that I was on because I, my job kept getting more and more demanding and I was, you know, it kept getting more and more projects and I was getting more and more worn down emotionally because of what was going on at home. And eventually I, I had to come out at Disney. Um, I was terrified when I did it, but it had a, you know, a wonderful supportive environment for me after that. And everybody was incredible and helped me get through the the last uh, six months of Stephen's life. Um, finally having everybody know everything that was going on in my life where I had been hiding so much of it before then. So Disney was supportive for you through some really big transitions in your life. What, we talk a lot on this on this podcast about transitions, and mostly we talk about uh, professional, not as much personal. Though so many times they're so intertwined. Why leave Disney? Well, I hadn't planned on it. Um, you know, my uh, Disney was so wonderful to me. And after Stephen died in 1991, um, a couple of years later, my career was really rocketing there, and I was having so much fun. I got to work on pretty much every really high profile project the company did between 90, you know, 93 to 90, 1998 when I left. And really what happened was my, my dream was to get promoted into an operating finance role. You're going to laugh and be transferred to Walt Disney World and live in Orlando, Florida. I really, really wanted that because I worked a lot with the people from Walt Disney World. They were all incredibly nice. They were all incredibly organized. I had to go to Disney World every three months for work. And I just always looked forward to going and having fun with them. And I made a ton of friends over there. And um, But our CFO wanted me to stay in investments in Treasury because he thought I was too more valuable in that position than if I had gone into Disney World. So he wouldn't let it, wouldn't let me ha transfer. Um, and so, and I always sort of thought about it, but I, you know, I realized I was going to be kind of um, not, I want to, I don't want to say the word stuck in treasury, but, but in treasury because, and, and the CFO, uh, Richard, you know, paid me really well. He treated me really well. The company did treat me really well. It's just that I I didn't have the mobility that I ultimately wanted. And so one day, and he said, he always said, I'll take care of you. Don't you worry. And then one day he quit. He uh, went somewhere else. He went to another company and I sort of woke up and I thought, well, if he's leaving, who's going to take care of me now? I don't know that anybody will. And there was a lot of transitions happening. We had a new treasurer that had come on line and we were still, you know, still getting to know him and how he worked. And I Literally because Richard quit and went to Starwood Hotels and Resorts, um, he'd resigned. He hadn't left yet, but he'd given his notice. I called my friend Susan, who introduced me to her headhunter, and I went on one interview at Amazon.com, and this was in 
April of 1998, when the company had just been public for barely a year. And, um, and after the end of that day, they, they hired me to be their first assistant treasurer. And um, I okay, really... So, so far, you've got two single eggs in single basket stories here, right? Yes. I, I'm going to go one interview. in on Disney. I'm going to do one interview and go to Amazon. And Amazon at the time was not a sure thing. No, it was losing money hand over fist. I had bought a book from them because I wanted to see if the website worked. And I knew, but I knew, inter, you know, the internet was becoming a big thing by 1998. And I knew that there was going to be a big sector. And I knew Amazon had a chance to be successful. Um, but I literally went on this one interview um, up in Seattle. They hired me the next, you know, that was a Friday. They hired me, they made the offer on Monday. And then Disney countered and tried to keep me at Disney. And I, for a moment, I almost stayed at Disney and then Amazon countered back and they doubled all my stock options, which was insane. And at that point I knew I sort of had to go because if Amazon became really successful, I was going to kick myself the rest of my life for having turned down the offer. And, um, and also their CFO joy was just incredibly smart and wonderful. I really bonded with her on my interviews and so it was really hard to leave Disney. I was very, very sad about it. I'd been there for basically 10 years for the worst period of my life. And they had really stood by me. And um, But I owed it to myself to, to take this chance. And it was, it you know, Amazon, when you say Amazon now, you think, well, that wasn't much of a chance. But in 1998, it was a big chance because it, it wasn't clear that they were ever going to sell more than books. It wasn't clear... They, you know, they had a hard time raising money in the capital markets. They, you know, the stock was, I think the stock when, when I interviewed there was like at $6 a share. I mean, it was a really tiny company. And, um, and so, but I felt, I finally felt like after 10 years at Disney and I got my whole life back together about after Steven had died, I took it, it taken me a long time to rebuild it. And I thought, okay, well, I can take this chance that I can go there for three years if it doesn't work out. I can do something different. And, um, and uh, ultimately that's what led me to, to make that leap. And it was scary. <laughs> and you I, moved to beautiful Seattle. Yes, we moved to Seattle and um, Seattle is beautiful when the sun is out. Um, <laughs> and the thing about why well, I'm born and raised in Southern California. And so sun is very important to me. I didn't know how important sun was to me until I moved to Seattle. And I realized that, oh my God, I think I can maybe make it three winners here and then I have to leave. Um, it's a it's a really interesting city. And when the sun is out, I don't think there's a more beautiful city in the world. It's just that it only happens like seven days a year. And it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for me. And, um, and I think also the job I had was very, you know, I was working 80 plus hours a week. You know, in the internet, there's no boundaries in personal and work life. And um, I mean, it was fun for a while because I was learning so much and I was teaching everybody so much. And we were, you know, we were conquering the world. I mean, I remember begging um, American Express to allow their cardholders to shop on the Amazon website in Germany because they, they didn't want to do it. And they didn't, you know, this is the days when credit card companies didn't really trust the internet yet. Um and so there were a lot of really crazy fun experiences of it, but um, the weather in Seattle does not does not jibe with me. 
for a long term for a long term home. <laughs> now, were you doing anything creative at this time? Were you writing? Were you doing? I mean, you went from being at a creative <clears throat> company to one that was creating in a whole different means, but you were being this sort of uber staff person bringing uh, expertise in to a non-creative company after having been a creative company for so long? That is a great question. So at Disney, I was able to do a lot of writing of speeches. So that was a creative outlet for me writing-wise. And um, at Amazon, I I was creative with finance. Um, I remember pursuing some innovative financing structures for the company because Amazon was a terrible credit at that point in time. So nobody would lend money. Um, we had to have a letter of credit for everything. We had to have a security deposit for everything. So I negotiated some really interesting structures that would allow, you know, all kinds of financial covenants to fall away based on the market cap of the company growing. So I was able to do things like that. And then ultimately I got promoted into international chief financial officer <laughs> where I was able to do some incredibly creative things with the the head of international, um, but um, that helped ultimately Amazon uh, not not go bankrupt. You know, avoid bankruptcy because it was heading towards the end of my time at Amazon. It was really heading for bankruptcy, um, and uh, we inst- we instituted a lot of financial discipline in international that. Uh, actually helped the company really turn around and ultimately became part of a template for how Amazon became profitable. And International was actually the first part of the company that was profitable. And I was there when it happened. And you also <laughs> became case law and went to go to eBay. So how did you end up at eBay? I All I really, I mean, I really just, I wanted so much to just move back to California. I wanted to be living where there was better weather, where you could go out in December and January and, you know, walk in shorts and things like that. So I looked for all kinds of jobs and I ultimately got hired to be vice president of finance at eBay. Um, And it was based in San Jose, but I could live in, you know, Northern California, which has got better weather than Seattle. And you worked on the PayPal acquisition? Yes, I did. You've been like Zelig. No, I have right point at the right time as things have been happening across Mm -hmm. a lot of these spaces. Yes, I mean I was at a lot of really interesting places at big growth points in their history, Um, and of course the thing about internet jobs is they do take a lot. They do take a piece of your soul um, because they do take over your whole life, and you don't have a person. You know, you can't. It's hard to have a relationship, and you really can't. If you have children, you may not see them. You may not be able to go to their soccer games, or you know, um, or whatever. And you, know, you don't get weekends. You know, you work on every holiday. I mean, there's it's. Uh, we also, we used to call it dog years. You know, working one year at an internet company is like seven years at any other company. Um, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot um, as much about what to do as what as 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 what not to do. I mean, I think a lot of my learning from the internet years was what to not do. Um, whereas when I was at Disney, I learned a lot what to do and how so then, best practices. Chris, <laughs> <laughs> you then say, "I'm going to learn all this. I'm going to learn what not to do, and then I'm going to go into mortgage capital and take a company public." Yes, so that that was funny because I I you know I left eBay, and I was gonna literally take a year off and just um, you know I, I, my relationship had ended. I had a, I had a relationship which Amazon pretty much 
killed and then eBay put the finishing touches on it. And so I was going to take a year off and travel the world and put everything in storage. So I bought a condominium in San Francisco and I put everything in there and I was just starting to look at where I would go. And um, this company called me and said, you know, we're, we're a REIT, we're a real estate investment trust. We're private now, but we have to go public within six months. We need a CFO to take us public. Would you want to do it? And um, as you know, in the finance world, taking a company public is the crowning achievement of the finance career. And it was guaranteed IPO because they had promised their investors they'd be public within six months, which is really kind of a crazy thing to promise your investors, but they had done it. So I knew it would be public within six months. It was in mortgages, which I didn't really know much about, but I thought, oh, I can learn a new thing. It can't be that hard. And um, it was in San Francisco. So it was really, you know, two BART stops away from my condo. And, um, and I thought, I'm going to do it. And so I just, I put my travel, my year of travel off and I went and I did it. And I ended up staying there for five years. We grew, we went public, we grew to a $9 billion REIT. It was really big. And then when the credit crisis approached, um, you know, it started, REIT financing got very sketchy and we, my, the CEO made a decision to move everybody to Philadelphia, which is where most of the employees were. And I was not going to move to Philadelphia because I had already learned my weather lesson from Seattle. And I was not going. And so I, I left at the end of 2007, which interestingly happened to segue perfectly with starting my current company because uh, one of my former um, CEOs I had worked with um, had retired and was looking for someone to help his family. And, um, and that's what ultimately grew into my current company, Mosaic. But I thought you were going to take a year off then too. I remember at that time you said, oh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to maybe retire. I'm going to take time off. Did you take any time off? No, I really didn't. Um, like I didn't take any time off between Disney and Amazon. I didn't take any time off really between Amazon and eBay other than the three month lawsuit we had, but I was still, still reading and researching. I didn't take any time off really after eBay other than to move to this condo. And then after my REIT. I mean, even as it was winding down, um, I remember starting my current company while it was winding down. I would work on it at nights and on weekends. And it literally, you know, my last day at my REIT was December 31st of 2007. And my first day was January 1st on my new company. So I never did get to take that year off. No, I never did. Because <laughs> that's been one of my memories of you is the... I'm planning to take time off. I'm planning yes. to sell my company. I'm planning. Mm -hmm. And and each time it's been the, but I, I'm going to move to the next thing. So you've mm -hmm. told a story of, of now stepping into several different companies where you didn't know or had to learn. How did one start from scratch an investment company in the chaos right. of early 2018? Eight. You mean eight. Or 2008. 2008. Yeah. I mean, it's just... I, I mean, I think one of my secret weapons is that I'm really good at figuring things out. Like, I don't know the answer to everything. I don't ever try to. But if I need to know something, I can figure it out. And that goes for, you know, writing a prospectus or writing a 10K or a 10Q or doing the earnings press release or, you know, figuring out how to deal with investment bankers and get them, you know, get the money in the door and, you know, doing a roadshow for, uh, taking a company public, which is, you know, an insane piece, you know, bunch of work you do. Um, and I'm not afraid to dive in into an area that I don't know and really just roll around and 
get muddy and figure it out. And, and I actually really enjoy it. I mean, I learn. I mean, for me, that's the, the tactical way that I learn is to like be doing it and to having the, and it's a lot of, I mean, there, there's a lot of fun for me in that. And there's a lot of storytelling. Because I would say, I know that you and I talked a while ago about that some of your current job is actually storytelling about what's happening in the world and sense making of it to families who have the need to be feel safe and feel that they're doing the right thing and not having to be the expert that you and your team become. That's right. I mean, I think um, what I do now draws upon all of my experience and all of my education. And I think being having been an English literature major and knowing how to communicate as well as I do, I can take a very complicated financial topic and really distill it into uh, words or slides that can that can uh, really speak to someone who didn't take an MBA, you know, didn't get an MBA. And that's what I do every day. I mean, I'm talking to clients about, here's why we want to be in these types of investments in this type of, in this period, here are the risks of them. Here's why you should worry, should not worry, whatever. And, um, and then also just being able to, you know, combining just the, the empathy and the psychology of an investor, because half of investing is psychology and you have to understand the person and their personality and, What's their worldview and what do they, what bad experiences have they had with investments prior to meeting you? And, and how can you, how can you get them to make the right decision and also do it in a way that doesn't threaten them or make them get mad at you? Or, I mean, every person is a different way that they process information. And, and I think that because of these jobs that I've had, where I really, from my very first job, I was speaking to senior executives. I was presenting at board committees. I've, I've been in board meetings. I've been, you know, you know, torn apart in board meetings. I understood, you know, I, I think one of the things that I do better than many is to actually present something in a really succinct way that is understandable. And you interweave money with innovation in some interesting ways so that you've, you have helped the magic of money storytelling behind innovative companies. And now you're doing the same thing for innovative families who in many ways have created their, their value from being innovative and creative. And you're bringing the money storytelling to it, which I find fascinating. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Yes. And I finally, after all these years... I mean, I knew, I finally realized that life was never going to slow down for me, really. I'm almost, I'm 58 years old now. And um, and I wrote the book in 2017 and early 2018. And, um, and I just realized that I was terrified to write it. I didn't know if I would remember what had happened in any great detail. Uh, I was terrified of the disclosures that I'd be making in this book, which I've now made peace with. Um, and, um, but... I was, life was never going to be calm for me. It just never has been. I mean, not since the day I got out of business school. And, um, and I just made the time to finally write something. The irony is that I always, when I was young, I always thought I would write comedy. That's really what I do. I think I do best. And um, this book is about the furthest thing from comedy that you could imagine because it's dealing with death and dying and, you know, all of my friends around me dying and my parents rejecting me and my, you know, our friends rejecting us and fighting with doctors and insurance companies and other parents and, um, and trying to build a career and not die myself in the process. Um, and then coming out on the other end and having a really happy and pretty, 
I mean, I'm so amazed when I think about the life that I've led. It's kind of amazing on so many different levels. Um, <clears throat> but I finally got the courage and the, made the time to write a book. And, and I was very surprised how it all came out and the things that jumped out on the page. And the people around in it. So you have people in this book, but you even on your cover here is, you know, Michael Eisner, Peter Chern, and Lawrence Gordon, and Elaine Wynn, that you've been able to then interweave your story with relationships of, of value and support, which is really cool. So, Chris, yeah. as we get toward the end of this, and people get Chris's book, um, and we'll have stuff in the show notes about the book. But um, what's your next phase? You have yet to take that year off you keep talking about. Is there a creative <laughs> journey? Is there another book in the mix? I know you love to travel. This has been a crap travel year, of course, and that you still, I think, are doing what you can on the personal exercise and other great stuff of personal and emotional health. What is the next Chris Zida story? I don't know yet. Um, I am enjoying the way that this book is unfolding for me. I've had um, a couple of good reviews so far. Um, I've had a lot of positive re uh, reaction from people who've read it. Um, so that's encouraging. Uh, it all depends on how much it sells. Um, if I think if, if it sells and it's a success either critically or, uh, by the number of books it sells, I'm going to certainly be tempted to, to write something else. I mean, I think, um, it's, a it's too early to tell yet, but I'm really cautiously optimistic and I'm enjoying all the podcasts and the radio interviews and the TV interviews that I've been doing about it. And, um, I'm certainly open to that. I think that, um, you know, it's possible that it leads me to pursue finance and writing at the same time. I mean, although that's a lot to do, because I remember how much time it took to write this book and all the discipline it took. But um, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I'm ever going to get to take that year off traveling until I'm like fully, fully retired. And I don't know when that's going to be. Because life's too I much fun. I don't know if you're ever going to fully retire. Chris, <laughs> we're near the end of our, of our conversation together. Is there anything else we haven't talked about that you'd like to mention? Um, no, but if you want to find out more about my book, you can go to my website, which is um, www.czyda.com, czyda. And um, there's information, there's reviews, there's um, some of the media that I've done is on there. And um, you can uh, read about my bio more. And um, and I hope you would give it a chance to try reading my book. I've I think it's uh, it's a crazy story of the terrible years of the AIDS pandemic um, that has an uplifting ending, which is which unfortunately was not always the case uh, for people in that era. So, well, thank you for joining us. We'll have this information in the show notes, and I'm looking forward to watching your continuing adventures in the world of Chris Zida. <laughs> Thanks, Gigi. It's great to be here. Have a great day. Well, that's Chris's story. Is that different than your story? Have you had to turn an abrupt right or left at some point in time and figure out how to take your superpowers and add them to something else? Join us at nextcareer.me for classes to think about your own career journey. They're free right now. Plus, we're building other materials and we'd love to have you in the community. And also take a look at the whole podcast at creativeinnovatorspodcast.com. 
We'll be having stories from other people. We're going to be changing the podcast out to have once a week drops on Tuesdays that are going to be stories about how to build out a creative nonlinear career. And Thursdays drop really great episodes from people who have been nonlinear change agents, have taken their careers in unusual directions, and hopefully provide some inspiration for your life. Thanks for listening to Creative Innovators. We are expanding our footprint, so we invite you to go to creativeinnovatorspodcast.com and find us on Substack, where we are creating a new matrix of our past shows that you can find them more easily and find them along with the Career Adventure Guide content, where you can take your own career and use some of the tools in the setup to both be inspired by past episodes of Creative Innovators, as well as become a bigger and better creative innovator yourself. We're also launching in a couple of other platforms this year. So stay tuned and join our lists and and find out where else you can find and combine with creative innovators in 2024.